John chapter 5. This is part 2 and uh, the message entitled Messiah who heals and offends. This is not just the happy, gracious, loving Jesus as we all want him to be. This is Jesus as the Son of God, as God himself, as the second person of the Trinity, come to an earth full, full of sinners. And so we started last week by asking this question and answering it. What if God took up residence among sinners as an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-understanding teacher who never hesitated to speak the truth? And what if he were absolutely fearless about confronting injustice, hypocrisy, and sin wherever and in in whomever he found it? And furthermore, what if in addition to all of that, what if in addition to all of that, it became evident that he he was just as mortal as any other man? Would we, that is a world of sinners, would we love him? Would we bow down to worship him? No. We would kill him. And we would do it at the earliest opportunity. Evidence for this found throughout all four Gospels. But in the Gospel of John, we get our first taste of it here in chapter 5. Thus far in our study of the Gospel of John, the responses to Jesus have been mostly positive, with a couple of exceptions. But now we kind of turn a corner here, or John turns a corner in his writing of this Gospel. The response has mostly been positive, but now things things kind of change. In the account of Jesus' ministry here, we discover that there were many in Israel who had heard Jesus' teaching, and they saw his miracles, and even though they saw his miracles and heard his teaching and were very impressed by it, nevertheless, they would not believe in him. They wouldn't believe that he was the Messiah. They wouldn't believe in him. And I suggested last week that we find four major themes in this text before us here in John chapter 5. We see how Jesus related to sickness. We see how Jesus related to sinners. We see how Jesus related to the Sabbath. And we see Jesus, the Son of God. In chapter 5, Jesus presents us, John presents us with this account of Jesus healing the man at the pool of Bethesda man who'd been sick for 38 years. So if you have your Bible open, and I hope you do, um, we were talking this week as elders as we met for a retreat, or a couple of us were, not in a formal way, but uh, the possibility of having a scream come out of the ceiling and uh, to show the music for our, our singing. And I said, you know what, I have a problem with that, but I don't want scripture up there. I want people looking at their Bibles. This, your Bible, look at your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, we will give you one. Or you can grab one out of the pew. Just don't take that one home. Leave that one here. So look at your Bible at John chapter 5 and hear the word of the Lord, beginning with verse 1. After these things, that is, after chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and all the things that took place there, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews. 
And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos, or five roofed-in porches with columns. And in these porticos lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred up the water, and whoever went first after the stirring of the water stopped. And they went in. The first one was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time in this condition. And he said to him, do you wish to get well? And the man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me in the water when the water is stirred. But while I am coming, another steps in before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your bed, walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began, began to walk. And then John says, Now it was the Sabbath on that day. It was the Sabbath. And so here, once again, we see Jesus banishing disease. What's the first thing we're looking at here again? This is Jesus' relationship to sickness. Jesus and sickness. And when Jesus came, he, he often banished disease, sometimes from more than one person, sometimes one at a time. And actually, when, when he did it, he usually did it with a word. Here, it's interesting because as you read it, Jesus doesn't say anything to the disease, and he doesn't really say anything about the disease. He simply says, do you wish to get well? And then the only other thing he says is three imperative verbs here, three commands. Get up, pick up your bed, walk. And so he didn't even use any words to heal the man. He told the man to get up and to pick up his pallet and walk to demonstrate that the healing had already happened. There was discretion here. He walked into this pool area, and there were two of them there, five porticos, two pools. And, and John tells us that there was a multitude there. By the way, there's, I, I think I said this last week, but there was no sign that the disciples were even there. He came by himself. He's, he kind of slipped in, unawares. People didn't notice him. He, he comes to this man who'd been sick for 38 years. Maybe he kneels next to him. Maybe he whispers in his ear, do you wish to get well? The man responds, and Jesus says, pick up your bed, or, or, or get up, pick up your bed, and walk. And then he slips away. He's gone. It's discreet. On the one hand, this is a truly amazing miracle. On the other hand, it may not be at all what we expect from the Messiah. Verse 3 tells us that there was a multitude who were sick, Nevertheless, Jesus healed how many? One. One. I mean, he actually passed over all of the other sick people in that place. A multitude of sick people he passed over. Does that bother you? Do you feel the urge to insert something in the text that makes Jesus' ministry here um, more inclusive than it was? 
Does it bother you that it's less inclusive? Does it strike you as unfair? I mean, Jesus could have, could have called out to the multitude. He could have done this one pool at a time, nice and orderly. And he could have called them all together. Hey, can I have everybody's attention? Everyone look here for a minute and uh, be healed. Or he could have said this, even, even more discreetly. Everyone, listen to me. I, I have something I want you to, to hear. Um, I want you to pick up your bed and stand up and leave. And those who obeyed would have discovered that they were healed. And that would have been amazing. This was less than that. Far less than that. You say, really, did he, did he step around sick people? Like maybe over them? Yep. And then he slipped out. Nobody even knew the miracle happened. Does that strike you as unfair? That in the mystery of God's sovereign providence, Jesus chose to allow the multitude of sick people to remain sick. And moreover, he, he doesn't even make any attempt to explain it. John doesn't even make an attempt to explain it. As I was studying this this week, you know what it reminded me of? Job. Job, you remember Job? You remember God in heaven? The sons of God were presenting themselves to him. That means angels. And Satan was among, him, among them. And he comes. And Satan doesn't initiate the conversation. You remember that? God looks at Satan and says, Have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> if I were Job, I would have said, Just keep me out of this. Talk about something else. <laughs> I want you to turn to Job chapter 8. Well, I'm kind of explaining this. But here, here God says, Have you considered my servant Job? He's... He's righteous. There's no one like him in all the earth. And Satan says, that's just because you protect him. If you, if you, if you took away your protection, he'd curse you to the face. And, uh, and God says, have at him. And so Satan comes along and he takes all, of, all ten of Job's children. They're killed. He takes his flocks, he takes his land. The enemy comes, destroys everything. Leaves Job with nothing but a wife full of bad counsel and three friends full of bad counsel. He's got nothing else except God himself. And initially, the text keeps saying, despite all of this, Job didn't sin with his mouth. But eventually in his heart, Job had some stuff going on. And you know what the question was? God. This is unfair. This is unfair. I mean, have you not seen my sacrifices? Have you not seen my faithfulness? Have you not seen my righteousness before you? I know I'm a sinner, but I've done everything that you ask. There has been no one more righteous than me. God, I, contend with me. Come into the courtroom and let me at least lay out my case before you, and you will see that you have been unfair. In Job 38, if this isn't startling to you, either you're jaded to it or something else is wrong. But this is how God responds. And he does this virtually through the rest of the book. 42 chapters in this book. 42 chapters. Long book for a scriptural text. Most of this is about Job's suffering. 
a couple of chapters at the end, three or four chapters at the end, with God and Job having some communication. Nowhere in the 42 chapters does God give Job an explanation. But he does speak to him. And are you ready for this? Imagine God saying this to you after you've been devastated. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. You know what a whirlwind is? Of course you do. You're from Texas. Out of the tornado. And he says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me, Job. Where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Can you hear the dripping sarcasm of God? It does my heart good because sarcasm is my love language, right? Just kidding. (laughs) Sorry. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched out a line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And what kind of question is that? God, talk with me. Let's go to court together. I'll, I'll present my case. You'll see I've been dealt with unjustly. And God asked these kinds of questions? Oh, but there's more. Look at verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning Is that a trick question? Was that on the study sheet? Verse 16, have you ever entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Or verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? You got to know Job is... You're thinking, you mean there's, there's places for that? Have you ever entered the storehouses of the snow, Job? Have you seen the storehouses of hail? Verse 33, do you know the ordinances of, of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Job, do you know who you are contending with? I am all these things. I've done all of these things. I know the answer to all of these things, and you know nothing. You know nothing. You know what the implicit question is in this? Do you trust me or not? My ways are not your ways. Your understanding will fail you every time when you try to understand my sovereign purpose of your life and this world. I have 10,000 reasons for taking your children, and they're all holy, and they're all good, and you know nothing of it. And I do not have to explain myself, nor would it be good for you to know. It's hard. Implicit in all of this is, but will you trust me? Job, you said, the Lord, gives the, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you still, do you still say that? And so how does Job answer? Um, he says this, behold, chapter 40, verse 4, I am insignificant. 
and what can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once, once I have spoken, and I will not answer. Even twice, and I will add nothing more. And the Lord answered him out of the storm. And what would you think he would say at this point? Bless you, Job. You get it. Oh, no, 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 no. God says, and the Lord answered Job out of the storm again, and he said, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Adorn yourself, verse 10, with eminence and dignity, and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. In other words, be my king, Job. Verse 14, then I also will confess to you that your own right hand can save you. No, no, I will not explain. You must trust me. It's amazing, isn't it? And Job answers, verse 42, then Job, uh, chapter 42, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. No. I have heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. You know what he's saying? God, I realize I have no right to question your ways. So Jesus steps over a multitude and heals one ungrateful sinner who in response to his being healed after 38 years turns him over to Jesus' enemies. That's what happens. John chapter 5, turn back. Does all of this bother you, beloved? Listen, listen to me. I think part of the problem with American Christianity is that we are uncomfortable with God being God. We don't want him to be God. We want to be God. We want God to serve us. We don't like taking orders. We don't like being submissive. Do you know what it means to be God? It means this, that he does what he pleases in the powers of heaven and the people of earth, and no one can hold back his hand or say to you, what have you done? You know who said that? Nebuchadnezzar. We've talked about this many times. After eating grass in the backyard for seven years in God's judgment, I believe we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven one day. You know what Nebuchadnezzar learned? He learned the right answer to this question. Will you trust me? You know why Jesus passed over all those other people? You know why he passed all over all, those, all those, that multitude of sick people? Do you know why? No, you don't. And I don't either. And he doesn't tell us. Of course we don't know. It's just an observation in the text. 
But one of the great differences between true children of God and those who are religious pretenders, whether they know it or not, is this. Those who really belong to Christ find comfort and security and peace in the majestic, awesome, infinite sovereignty of God. We love it, even though sometimes it unnerves us. But it's there that we find our security. Listen, talk all you want about the love of God. But if the God who loves you is not also the sovereign God, then that's not the love you need. Yes, he loves you. The sovereign God of the universe who does as he pleases has pleased to set his love upon you. How's that? That's awesome. That's awesome. And I don't say awesome very much. He works all things according to the counsel of his own will, Paul said in Ephesians 1.11. God's children love the fact that he is sovereign. The second thing that we see here is not only Jesus' relationship to, to sickness, it's also Jesus' relationship to sinners. We made several observations last time about this man who was healed, but let me just remind you what Jesus did after the healing. He went to the man, he found him in the temple, verse 14. It says very clearly, after Jesus, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said to him, Behold, you have become well. Now what would you insert there? Do you believe? Will you believe? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? No. Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore. Stop sinning so that nothing worse happens to you. What? what, Is that a threat? Yep. Yep. Did you pick up on the implication here? The implication here is that the man's 38 years of sickness was a direct result of his sin. That God brought it upon him in judgment. And now he was being gracious. Now he is being merciful. And he's saying, let this grace that I am pouring out on you, this healing after 38 years, let it be grace to you that leads you to repentance. The healing was for holiness. The healing was for sanctification. But the man missed it altogether. The implication here is that 38 years of sickness was a result of sin. And this is not merely an Old Testament idea. Even in the New Testament, we see God not only healing people in Christ, but also one who occasionally makes people sick in Christ. Really? Yep. Really. Really. I mean, this morning we're about ready to take part in the Lord's table. This ought to be a little sobering, by the way. I didn't plan on this text being on Lord's Supper Day. But think of this. Key text in the New Testament for the Lord's table, other, outside of the Gospels, is 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11 is where Paul gives instructions about coming to the Lord's table. And what he says there is, if you come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, for that reason, some in your church are sick and some have died. And witness the fact that in Acts chapter 9, there was a husband and wife team, presumably godly people with money in the church. Their names were infamously Ananias and Sapphira. Um, 
And it's not chapter 9, now that I think about it. I have it written wrong. It's chapter 5. It's, it's, here's how you remember. Five dive, right? Ananias and Sapphira go to their grave. How'd that happen? Well, they went out, and they, they sold a piece of land, and they came back to their church, and they said, we've sold a piece of land, and here is all of the proceeds. And guess who their pastor was? Peter. <laughs> Don't you like to have Peter as your pastor? I'd step aside if he wanted the job. Um, they lied about the amount of money. Even in this church, there were people who had a low view of the holy majesty of God, which is evidenced by their lie. Because they, they weren't giving the money for the good of people and the exaltation of Christ. They were giving their money to enhance their own personal reputation among God's people. Look at us. Aren't we glorious? Reputation is an insidious thing, beloved. How did God respond? Right at the feet of the apostle Peter and one by one, Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart? to lie against the Holy Spirit. You have not lied to me, but against God. And they immediately died. And the young man came and picked up Ananias, took him out. Not long later, his wife showed up. Same thing, she died. The Lord took him. My friends, does this bother you? Is this unnerving to you? Listen, if, if you're... If your vision of Jesus is gentle Jesus, meek and mild, full of grace, kissing every child, blessing, never a, 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 never a cross word. He died because he never stood up for himself. He was, like a, he was like a lamb. He was not only like a lamb. He was also Lord of heaven and earth. And he never once flinched. That's why he went to the cross. Because these people who should have bowed down and worshipped him killed him. Because they couldn't take the reality that he would mess around with their personal lives, expose their sin, and tell them things that offended them. Does this bother you? Do you find your soul pulling back from this God? But there's more. Not only did Jesus implied that the man's original sickness was from God, but also that if he didn't repent, God might smite him with something worse. Does that sound like Jesus? The kind of Jesus that you know? The kind of Jesus you worship? Or is Jesus the kind of, the kind of Savior who heals all of your diseases and gives you every explanation to what he has done? I had a woman come up to me after the service, and she lost a baby years and years and years ago. And she said, I was so troubled by this. I've never heard this proclaimed before. And this is so comforting because I was always confused because older uh, believers would come to me and they say, we're so sorry you lost your baby, but God will, God will tell you why. And she was like, oh, really? Yes, God will, will tell you why. And she said, God never told me why. And, and she told me later, she said, and I always thought it was, it was interesting because God never told me why before on anything. This is the God that we serve. 
He's supreme over all things. Now, if you keep studying this carefully, we see even more, and I'll make this very quick. Jesus and the Sabbath. This is how Jesus relates to the Sabbath, to traditions. And so many, so many approaches to God are just tradition-based. Tradition after tradition after tradition, extrapolation from the text. You come up with a tradition, you lay it down as law, and then you require your people to obey. And many of you have come out of various uh, semi-Christian traditions, and you know of what I speak. At the end of verse 9, John inserts this. Now, it was the Sabbath day when he did this. Why is that important? Oh, it's really important. This is really going to upset the Pharisees, as we see in the story. Um, why this day? I mean, the, the day Jesus healed the man at the pool. Why this day? I mean, the Pharisees, even if, even if they acknowledge that he did a miracle, and, and they never once refuted it, any of his miracles, They weren't looking for this kind of Messiah. This was not the kind of Lord they were expecting. They didn't want this kind of Savior. They wanted a a Savior, a Messiah, who would come and cause the whole world to bow down to their laws and traditions. Their idea of Messiah had little to do with compassion and mercy on God's people. That whole bit in Isaiah about the Messiah coming and not breaking a, a bruised reed or snuffing out a smoldering wick, I mean, That kind of compassion and mercy just didn't compute with them. It was law, obey, law, obey. And they were looking for a Messiah who would impose and enforce their restrictions on people and do it across the whole world. Now, what you need to understand here, we don't have a lot of time to get into Sabbath law, but God gave the Sabbath not as a restriction on people, but to bless his people. It's as if God was saying, I know your propensity, you're going to work, 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 and I don't want you to do that. I want you to take a day and take a nap and rest and prepare your food the day before so your wife doesn't have to do any work. Take a nap. Think about God. He didn't even call them to worship on the Sabbath, not originally. Just take a day off. And I'm serious about this. Take a day off. No work. I don't want you going to the office. I don't want you building the house. I don't want you cooking meals. Just rest and enjoy me. And, uh, and, and the Pharisees and the scribes said, oh, we've got to be really careful not to let anybody break the Sabbath. And so they built all these other traditions on top of it to keep, it, keep their people as far away from breaking the Sabbath as possible. And it was that that Jesus was going after. Not the original law. We know this because in Matthew's gospel, Jesus explains very clearly, Matthew 2, 17, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And later on, Jesus will explain this to the Pharisees. They're after him about Sabbath again because he kept poking them. It's amazing. What I want you to see here about Jesus is these guys get mad at him for doing this on the Sabbath. Jesus did that on purpose. He took a stick, he went up to the hornet's nest, and he started whacking it and made him mad. He was supposed to. He was poking at the very thing that they were using to keep their people in spiritual bondage. And he wanted it exposed. 
And they didn't have any interest in Jesus, a Savior who would come and heal. They weren't impressed with his healings. They were offended by his healings. And so Jesus told the man, take up your bed. I know it's the Sabbath. Do it anyway. Take up your bed and get out there and walk. Go home. Go wherever you want. Carry your bed. Carry your bed. And the Pharisees came, and they saw him carrying his bed. And uh, verse 13, but the man who was healed didn't know who it was that Jesus, uh, who it was, who had healed him because, now look at this, verse 10, the Jews were saying to the man who was, who was cured, it's the Sabbath day. It is not permissible for you to carry your bed. Right? So they come to him, and they don't care that he was healed. They don't care that the, uh, that the Messiah was here. The only thing they had to say to this guy was, put down that bed. I mean, come on. You talk about blindness. They should have known. But let's turn our attention back to Jesus again. Didn't he know it was the Sabbath? Of course he did. Everyone did. How many of you know today's Sunday? Did you know today's Sunday? Look, if I can't get a response out of that, I'm not getting any response at all. (laughs) Surely you know today's Sunday. Everybody knew it was the Sabbath. Um... But didn't he know that making this man carry his bed was going to anger the Pharisees? Of course it did. Of course he did. So what should we conclude? I want to suggest to you that what we should conclude is that upsetting the Pharisees was precisely Jesus' intention when he healed on the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath traditions were the primary means by which they kept the people from seeing the Messiah. Verse 16 says, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You know what Jesus' response is? I can do this on the Sabbath. I can do this on the Sabbath. You know why? Verse 19, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you. The son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life, even so the Son also gives life to whomever he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me, that person has eternal life. And he who does, does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. You know what he's saying? I can do this on the Sabbath, and I will do anything I want on the Sabbath. Because I am God. You say, really? Did they really believe that? Well, see for yourself. Verse 18. For this reason, the Jews, again, that's a technical term for the leaders of Israel. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, But he was also calling God his own father, his own father, making himself equal with God. 
Beloved, I don't know what your view of Jesus is. That's a good question for you this morning and for me. Is Jesus supreme over your life? Are you one who, who says, Lord, I love your blessings. Just don't tell me to do stuff. Don't tell me what to do, what not to do. Don't give me that legalistic stuff. I want grace. I want to do as I please. Listen, that is not the God whom you serve. This may be a revelation, but you know who God is? God is God. Jesus is God. What do we do as sinners, even save sinners, in relationship to that? We submit to the supremacy of God in Christ And we find in all of that security and peace and grace and mercy and joy and eternal life. These things, John says, I have written unto you that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believing you might have life in his name. That's why Jesus reveals himself. Why would we want a weak, manby-pamby God who can't stand up for himself in, in, in the face of ornery, a group of ornery little sinners who know nothing of what they're talking about? We don't want a God like that. We can't trust a God like that. But we can trust Jesus. He knew that by standing up to them, they would kill him. And that's why he came so that we would live. And that, beloved, is what the Lord's Supper is all about. There's a brother after the first service, whether he's a brand new believer or almost a believer, I don't know yet. But he said this as he was leaving, Pastor, I've never seen a communion service like this before. Because everyone I've ever been to, the focus is on remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. He said, I always remember Jesus. I remember him. And we do this to remember Jesus. He said, but never have I been to a a Lord's table where I was asked to consider the condition of my own heart and repent because Jesus died. And you know what else he said? I didn't take the Lord's Supper this morning. I got to go home and ask these questions. And beloved, so do we all. Charlie's going to give you instructions. But before he does, let's pray. Father, praise you. Thank you for this revelation of Jesus Christ. Give us, Father, eyes to see and a heart that is ready to receive all that he is for us, all that you are for us in Jesus. He calls us to be true worshipers. We worship the Father in spirit and in truth by loving and serving and obeying and submitting to joyfully your excellent Son. And we praise you in Jesus' name.